Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. China is currently experiencing an unprecedented level of civil unrest as people are flocking to the streets to protest harsh lockdown measures that have been in place for almost three years now. The country's zero COVID policy has come at a significant social cost, with news stories about families being separated and people's apartment doors being welded shut, all in an attempt to stop the spread of an illness that the Chinese population is starting to realise might not be as bad as the measures taken to avoid it. This most recent unrest is just the latest in a long line of bad news stories coming from the second largest economy in the world, an economy which is governed by leaders that the people have no direct say over. Civil demonstrations protesting lockdown restrictions are nothing new, but within mainland China it's a little bit different. These protests are demanding direct political change at the highest levels of government, and they don't seem to be showing any sign of slowing. This all came before the government effectively reversed its COVID policy overnight and opened the country up to a wave of infection that is happening all at once, with reports of as many as 37 million people a day catching COVID and forcing entire cities back into lockdown. Now, to be clear, the chance of an outright revolution is incredibly small, despite what some outlets might present. And as we've explored multiple times before in videos that we make covering China, that's probably a good thing. Despite the understandable animosity we as outsiders might feel towards China, nobody should want the economy to collapse through something like a violent revolution or social breakdown. Altruistically, we shouldn't want this because the current system, as problematic as it is, still supports hundreds of millions of extremely economically vulnerable people. Any type of widespread disruption in an economy as large and still mostly poor as China would cause untold human suffering among the people that have no say in the actions of their own leadership. Even if we are being entirely selfish, one of the very reasons we pay so much attention to China is because we are dependent on it. It buys a lot of our raw materials, invests into a lot of our economies, produces a large share of consumer items that we enjoy and the equipment that we rely on to run our own economies. So, with all of the instability in the country at the moment, maybe it's not a bad time to try and answer some important questions. First and foremost, what effect would a Chinese economic collapse have on the global economy? What are the most productive ways to minimise the impact that this situation could have on our own economies? And finally, could this unfortunate situation actually be a net positive to certain countries around the world? As always, I have to give the big disclaimer that nobody can predict the future, least of all economists. And that applies to hypothetical futures as well. There is no possible way to know exactly what a Chinese collapse would look like and what situations the rest of the world would be in if something like that were to happen. But with that said, this hypothetical isn't entirely unprecedented. The Soviet Union was once the second largest economy in the world. It was a heavily industrialised state with authoritarian leadership that eventually collapsed not in small part due to civil unrest, economic stagnation and a series of large-scale disasters. The impact of the Soviet system falling apart basically overnight threw the member nations of the Union into almost total anarchy as they had to reinvent a system of government from the ground up. The countries directly dependent on the USSR also suffered, but most nations outside of Soviet influence were just fine. 
By 1991, the Soviet Union was either the third or fourth largest economy in the world behind the USA, Japan, and potentially West Germany, which must have been pretty embarrassing considering that the Soviet Union also included East Germany in addition to 14 other member states. The reason we can't be certain if it was the third or fourth largest economy in the world at the time of its collapse is that record keeping in the Union was so corrupted and unreliable that institutions like the IMF and the World Bank could only be confident of its output within a range of around half a trillion dollars or so at the time. It's probably worth pointing out that China also has systemic issues with producing reliable economic data, but to be fair, it's not nearly as bad as it was during the late stages of the Soviet Union. Now, regardless of precisely where it sat in relation to the largest economies in the world, the Soviet Union was undeniably very substantial and very influential. But despite this, global GDP actually went up following its collapse. This is surprising, because all other things been equal, even if the collapse of the Soviet Union had absolutely no impact on any other economies at all, the very fact that a nation representing an appreciable percentage of the total global output, almost stopping operations entirely, should have brought the average down just by itself. And it did. Sort of. Global economic growth was still positive in the years following the Union's collapse, but it was lower than average and it was brought up by a general trend of high growth from countries like Japan, Germany, South Korea, and of course, China, which by this time was well and truly into the swing of their economic transition to a market economy. If you look at this chart for long enough, you'll notice that the fall of the Soviet Union almost did about as much damage to global economic growth as the oil and gas crisis of the mid-1970s, the recession of the early 80s, and the dot-com bubble combined with the September 11 attacks in 2001. Since 1961, when the World Bank started actively tracking global GDP figures, its sustained growth has been pretty consistent, only falling into negative growth twice. Once in 2008 during the global financial crisis, and once in 2020 during the pandemic. Now, none of these periods were particularly fun, especially when a global slowdown was actually caused by a more concentrated slowdown in a particular region that just happened to bring down the average. But maybe all of this suggests that a systemic collapse in China, like the one in the Soviet Union, wouldn't actually be catastrophic on a global scale. But of course, that might be naive, because there are some big differences between China and the Soviet Union. The first is simply size. When the USSR collapsed, it had a total output of around $1.6 trillion, according to the best figures that could be obtained by the World Bank. At the time, that accounted for around 7% of total global output, which was $23.8 trillion. Today, China has a GDP of $17.8 trillion, again, according to the best figures that could be obtained by the World Bank. That is roughly 18.5% of the world's total economic output of $96 trillion. If we just go off the raw numbers, a similar proportional drop would mean that the effect of China collapsing would be 2.5 times as bad, which means the global economy would suffer a hit roughly as large as the COVID pandemic. But that's just going off the raw numbers, which is probably a silly thing to do. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For starters, global economic growth is currently not as strong as it was in the 1980s and 1990s. 
it's roughly half a percent lower on average. Remember, a big reason that the collapse of the USSR didn't result in negative global growth figures was because of the growth of countries like China. Today, there aren't those massive economies on the rise to bolster average global figures. What's more is that when the USSR splintered into its constituent states, some members didn't actually do that badly for themselves. East Germany, for example, was already in the process of economic reunification with West Germany, and it actually benefited from becoming one with what was at the time the third largest economy in the world. Then of course there is the biggest difference between the USSR and China, one that I'm sure most of you have probably been thinking about all along. And that is that China is much more integrated into the global economy than the relatively isolated USSR ever was. Even the world as a whole is much more interconnected than it was just 30 years ago, with global supply chains, the prevalence of multinational corporations, international finance, and even just regular communications spanning countries being far more common than it was back in 1991. I don't want to downplay the impacts that the Soviet Union had on the world, but if ever there was an economy that could be neatly removed with little interruption to the rest of the world, it would have been one that lived behind the Iron Curtain. At its height, the USSR was responsible for less than 1% of all global trade, and this was at a time when the world traded far less intensely than it does today. China is currently responsible for 12.5% of total global trade according to the UN. Global trade is currently responsible for 52% of global output. Now, trade as a percentage of total global output is really worth understanding here, because what this does is look at the value that is added to the global economy due to the trade of goods and services between countries. That 52% figure might not make that much sense when you consider that only around 10% of the output of the American economy comes from exports, trade just being a component of output along with consumption, investment and government spending. But these two numbers are actually measuring different things. There are lots of goods and services that globally integrated economies like China and America import and export that makes the world a wealthier place but doesn't actually get consumed domestically. So it doesn't count towards domestic GDP figures, but it does count towards global GDP figures. There are actually countries like Belgium, where trade represents 169% of their total GDP. Nice. And even places like Hong Kong, where trade is 403% of their total output. This is because places like Hong Kong act as a middleman and accommodate lots of international trade and services that make other countries richer, but don't get used by Hong Kong itself. Now, global trade as a percentage of global output is actually down from its all-time peak, which occurred in 2007, when trade represented 61% of global output. The decline in the following years was caused by the GFC, and amongst other things, the gradual decline since has primarily been caused by China developing its domestic market and relying less on simply being a cheap place to produce things and then ship them overseas. Then of course, the most recent sharp drop was caused by COVID, and the World Bank hasn't yet produced figures for 2021 or 2022, but the general expectation is that it should be back up around 55%. Regardless of this decline, even at 52% of total global output, if 12.5% of that disappeared overnight and wasn't rapidly replaced by other countries or whatever regime takes over in China, then this theoretical total collapse would single-handedly plunge the world into the greatest economic downturn in recorded history. Of course, despite what the clickbait headlines and thumbnails might have you believe, the economy of China completely collapsing in the immediate future is incredibly unlikely. They have problems, sure, pretty serious problems to be fair, but it's also important to consider that the industries that deal most with the global economy, as in those that are providing international services, importing raw materials and exporting manufactured goods, are going to be the most resilient to internal turmoil purely because they are more dependent on the global economy than they are on the domestic Chinese economy. An extremely small scale example of this would be someone like myself. 
I run a business that provides a service of making videos that explain economics. This service is mostly exported to viewers all around the world. And yes, a service like entertainment or education is counted as an export if it's consumed in a different country from which it is made. If the economy of Australia completely collapsed tomorrow, there is no reason that I wouldn't keep on making videos because I could still make money by exporting my work to viewers in economies that are still functioning. This assumes that the economic collapse is not so extreme that I don't have access to electricity and the internet, but if that did happen then I could just move my business and continue my operations in another country and the world wouldn't have to do without the value that this service provides. Which, wow, this example made me sound incredibly arrogant and self-important, but you get the idea. Of course, a move like this on the scale of the businesses that we are talking about in China would cause massive short-term disruptions. But also, if we're talking about a situation where China's electricity grid has gone offline, then the world would probably have bigger problems than just an economic recession. Finally, the very fact that we are dependent on China gives its economy a level of robustness that means it's unlikely to just cease contributing towards the global economy. There are potential situations, like an invasion of Taiwan, that might spark Russian-style sanctions that could cut it off from the world quickly and severely, but short of that, any type of economic collapse, specifically within China, is likely to happen on a long, drawn-out timescale that would give industry enough time to establish operations in alternative economies, kind of like they're doing right now. So sorry it's not the exciting answer that you might have been hoping for. But exploring extreme economic situations can be really great thought experiments to learn about things like global trade, economic interdependence, and even how our world has evolved to be a far wealthier, albeit potentially more delicate system over just the past three decades. Thanks for watching, mate. Bye. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.